Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is a real privilege. He's out of Louisiana State. And the only reason he's on is he's got great Columbus Blue Jackets tickets for yeah. us at Nationwide Arena, the AEP box. American Electric Power is one of the great successful combinations in utility history. His fabric and soul is Southwestern Electric Power. And Nick Akins is an engineer out of Louisiana State. You know bad things happen. A couple weeks ago, you lost a high-voltage line near scenic New Boston, Texas. That's your everyday work at AEP. You've seen nothing like Houston. How do you fix the voltage lines of a disaster like Harvey? Well, certainly we have to we have to start out with uh, reforming the grid because when you have a hurricane like Harvey come through, uh, it's one thing to have a thunderstorm where you can where you can actually. Yeah. Go take care of the work, get it done, uh, get it back in service. But with a hurricane, uh, substantial damage to both transmission and distribution infrastructure, you have to really reform the system and rebuild the system. And that really takes a lot more planning, execution, and just the pure logistics of having so many resources in place to get it done and get it done quickly. Within the resources, and I'm sure you had to survive organic chemistry at Louisiana State (laughs) years ago, methylpropene is not a pretty thing and that is the chemical industry of texas is you know ugly organic chemicals that if they're not refrigerated with electricity do bad things like we saw this morning how critical is getting aep voltage supply to those chemical factories yeah, absolutely critical. There's no question that the refineries and, and the chemical processing is, is incredibly important to get back and get back quickly because uh, timing is of the essence. And certainly, even when you get the electricity back, these facilities have to sort of regroup themselves and make sure that all, all the conditions that are present in, in, within the factory are working properly. So uh, th- it does take time, uh, but it's cr- absolutely critical for electric power to be there. You're there in, in Ohio where you're based, and, and I wonder just how difficult it is to get get the story on the ground, to, to understand what needs to, to be fixed and, and sort of what's damaged at this point. Yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of uh, uh, the industry is working together with the federal government and the state governments uh, in, a, in a, uh, really in a coordinated fashion, uh, and also uh, our people on the ground there. We actually have a regional response network uh, that the industry has that we call resources based upon our own needs, and yeah. then we that's about five thousand resources are there <clears throat> now. And I've, I was actually down there the last two days uh, reviewing crews, reviewing and, and, and looking at uh, the, assessing the damage myself. And, and certainly uh, that damage is extensive. You have to have assessments done, and then you have to execute around their recovery efforts. Mr. Akins, uh, one financial question, uh, which is maybe out of bounds, but I'm going to take a risk. Your general counsel is not going to kill me today. <laughs> Tell me about the idea of dividend growth pressures on our American utilities. In the old days, it was gospel, it was religion that would we see dividend growth. Can AEP increase its rate of dividend growth? 
Yes, um, our uh, we continue to uh, base base it on consistent earnings quality and earnings strength, and then our dividend uh, grows with our earnings, and and that's something that that we're very focused on. We have uh, 110 years of consecutive dividends being paid, and and uh, there's no question we want that to continue. Mm-hmm. And as far as the utilities are concerned, there's an entire reformation of the industry and transformation going on that we're able to rehabilitate yeah. infrastructure, make sure we invest, but also invest in a growing economy as well. Okay, how important have the Columbus Blue Jackets been for your Columbus, Ohio? Was their turnaround last year phenomenal? It was. They did a great job. And yeah. I, I, I just, they just sort of fizzled out there at the end, but but uh, they'll make it back. Yeah, that's called doing the Yankees. Nick Akins, thank you so much. <laughs> With American Electric Power, Columbus, Ohio, but most seriously, uh, really all down to Mr. Akins, Louisiana, uh, with that great merger they did with Southwestern a number of years ago. Uh, beneath the headline data here, and I, I, credit, I critique the industry of not going enough, David Gura, under this headline data, disposable income has been really moldy the last four months. Zero up, then zero again, and up slightly this month. And it ends up showing in the agony of the savings rate. Let hmm. me be sure I got the Y column here. Going back to February of this year, We've enjoyed a savings relate migrating from 4.1, 3.9, 3.7, level 3.8-ish, 3.6, and now 3.5%. Wow. And that's when you got that income flow and that, that spending flow and where you get on a diminished savings rate. It is a really nuanced set of data. Yeah. And uh, as Carl Riccadonna mentioned just a few moments ago, we get that Chicago Purchasing Managers Index at 945. Uh, he's indicating we could see some cloudiness to the data over these next few uh, months as a result mm-hmm. of uh, both the hurricane uh, down in Texas and yeah. uh, the tumult that we've seen in Washington. Could- and uh, on that note... Let's bring in our next guest. Mike, uh, Michael Brown is an economist at Wells Fargo based in Charlotte. He joins us on our phone line. Spencer. Michael, before we get into Washington specific, uh, do you agree with Carl? Do you think the, these next few months are going to give us some cloudy uh, economic data as a result of the news flow that we've seen? I think that's right. I mean, when you take a step back, uh, you're absolutely right. There's certainly some uncertainty coming out of Washington uh, that has the potential to reduce both business and consumer confidence. And uh, so, yes, I, I think, you know, our, our team's view is that we will continue to see this two and a half uh, sort of percent uh, annualized mm-hmm. GDP growth each quarter. But at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. There's certainly some downside risk uh, and a fog moving over uh, the economy this fall. Michael Brown, the problem with working with you is I have to work with John Sylvia and your wonderful yeah. research, which is incredibly detailed research, always with killer charts. You have the mother of all Washington charts, which is U.S. discretionary spending, which has been on an Obama-Trump vector south for years. Are we running out of discretionary spending? We're so overburdened by our entitlements? You are absolutely right. At the end of the day, uh, more and more of federal spending, whether you want to look at it as a share of GDP or a share of the pie of federal uh, allocation, is shrinking for discretionary items. So when we typically think of the role of government, things like schools, higher education, public uh, service, uh, you know, firefighters, police officers, all of these sorts of uh, services are being crammed, uh, cramped out or crowded out, I should say, um, and, and 
at the cost of these growing entitlement liabilities. I'm looking at your, your latest note here, and the number that stands out to me is 12. 12 legislative working days uh, that Congress has here to raise the debt ceiling, deal with, with funding. How crowded are these, those days going to be, uh, are, and what do you expect we're going to see come out of that? Well, you're absolutely right. 12 legislative days in the House of Representatives. There's a few extra days on the Senate side. Uh, but the first thing that needs to happen upon their return next week is lifting the debt ceiling, the nation's borrowing limit. Uh, they then need to fund the government beyond the end of September. They also need to authorize a number of programs, uh, one of the key among them in the wake of uh, the hurricane down in Houston is the National Flood Insurance Program. So uh, many of these items typically take weeks to work through, and Congress will have a matter of days to try to wrap some of these uh, things up. How comfortable are you with how things are being prioritized uh, in Washington? We saw the reported unease between the president and the Senate majority leader. That was reported in the New York Times, among other outlets, but as this as this congressional recess began. Who's going to be setting the agenda, I guess, is, is my question. Who's going to be prioritizing what needs to happen? Well, at the end of the day, it's going to be Congress, whether it is on the spending front or the tax policy front. Uh, it will begin uh, with Congress. And, um, you know, the, as you've seen reported by Politico, uh, as well as Bloomberg Politics, um, there is uh, certainly much more uh, involvement of the White House in terms of back and forth in, in the backroom negotiations. But in terms of the heavy lift of the details of tax policy, uh, that will really be handled at the Ways and Means Committee at the House of Representatives and uh, by House and Senate well, leadership. Then are, are Mr. Brady of Texas and Mr. Ryan of Wisconsin, are they on something approaching the same page in the House? You know, it's, that's our read on the situation. We do think that they are on the uh, the same page, this so-called group of six. Um, they have been coordinating. Uh, and, you know, when you, you start looking at some of the details, whether it's doubling the standard deduction or trying to reduce the corporate rate, there's a little bit of back and forth in terms of what rate will actually settle on. Uh, it does seem to at least be moving in the same direction among uh, House and Senate leadership this time. Well, let's come back. Michael Brown with us with Wells Fargo. John Sylvia Wells Fargo as well on the American economy. Don't forget, Jobs Day tomorrow. We'll do that at 8.30 beneath the headline data. We're becoming smarter with one M. Brown, Michael Brown of Wells Fargo, looking at the American economy and really looking as well at the fiscal space of this September. How close are we to where a deficit to GDP is a concern to Michael Brown or to a grizzled veteran like John Sylvia? Are we getting near there? You know, this is a, a big question. There have been a, a numerous academic studies to try to figure out what exactly the tipping point. Yeah, four, five, six percent, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, yes, it is becoming concerning, in ter especially uh, as we sort of alluded to a little earlier in the conversation, this allocation of everything going to the entitlement programs, health care, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, for example. Um, so it's not necessarily uh, the, the debt to GDP ratio or the size of the deficit. It's how it's allocated. We're now in this spiral of needing to issue debt to order, in order to pay net interest costs as we start moving forward. So uh, there, there is going to need to be some reforms uh, down the line here. When you, when you look at the conversation about the, the debt limit, how unified a voice is this White House speaking with? Uh, do, do you have everybody on the same page that they want to do a clean debt ceiling increase? Uh, or do you still have folks like Mick Mulvaney, who when he was a member of the House of Representatives was saying, was singing a different tune, let's say? 
That's right. Well, you've sort of seen a change in, cho- in tone since the new chief of staff, uh, John Kelly, took over, and uh, it does appear that the messaging is much more consistent this time around. Um, and uh, the last several weeks, we have heard consistent messaging out of the White House in support of a clean debt ceiling bill, and that's precisely what we expect to move. Now, I think the, the key political challenge here is how well can Speaker Ryan sell this to his caucus, particularly those fiscal conservatives in the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, And he's going to need, well, the Senate's going to need some Democratic support. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And our expectation is Democrats will, if it's a clean debt ceiling bill, will support it in both the House and the Senate, along with those moderate Republicans in both chambers. Michael, what's your advice to to clients who who wonder who they should be listening to uh, at this point when it comes to trade, for instance, you have the president talking now uh, more regularly about the prospects for terminating uh, NAFTA. That's certainly not been the message from those beneath him who've been involved in those uh, negotiation conversations. Uh, we're seeing the, those kick into gear again tomorrow, I think, in Mexico a City, the latest stage of the, the NAFTA renegotiation talks. Uh, how much credence do you give what the president's saying? You know, this is this is the challenge, right? Uh, the the inconsistent messaging is really uh, the most difficult part of understanding where trade policy, for example, will go going forward. Um, what I would say is, if you you take a look at the details, the president has the authority, without uh, the advice or guidance of Congress, to implement uh, tariffs if he so chooses, um, and back out of NAFTA if he so chooses. This is uh, the trade promotion authority that was granted to then-President Obama to renegotiate the TPP, or the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So um, all of this falls within the purview of the White House. So um, should Trump choose to impose these tariffs, he certainly can. And, uh, you know, in my mind, that means that we do have to listen to the president on this one. Mike Brown, just because it's here, uh, September 1 and early tomorrow, the Jobs Day, let's go back to the dynamics. Uh, uh, John Sylvie has led the nation with review of what we do when we leave our job. Dr. Sylvia has been great folks of this idea that we migrate, as so many over the last 20 years have migrated to, say, Houston, Texas. Give us an update. Are we leaving our jobs and leaving our geography? You know, it, there's a lot of evidence to, to suggest that there is much more mobility, uh, particularly a, among younger workers in the workforce. Um, there is less loyalty to firms uh, relative to historical patterns, according to several studies. And so, yes, there is a lot more mobility. Um, one of the interesting things, just to tie this to the housing sector for a moment, is we've noticed over the last several years the disproportional share of rent versus buy. Now, certainly there is an affordability aspect. Of and difficulty of getting home mortgages for these first-time home buyers, but there's also a taste and preference shift among particularly millennials uh, to rent as opposed to buy, with the preference of being a lot more mobile. Do we have a good sense of housing policy under this administration at this point? You must be looking for that. What happens to uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and, and all of that as well? But do, are we getting a, are we getting a clear indication of how, how housing policy stands to change under this administration? Well, you know, uh, when you start talking about GSE reform uh, and and housing policy overall, um, you have 535 members of Congress and 535 different ways of of approaching this. So our sense is, if you take a step back and look at the objectives right now of the administration and Congress, they really want to cut taxes or try to reform taxes. And that may or may not be deficit neutral. The 
uh, Freddie and Fannie are actually paying dividends into the U.S. Treasury, and that is helping uh, to reduce that budget deficit every year. So as long as they are providing the, that dividend or that cash inflow, uh, mm-hmm. it does reduce the incentive uh, to really move forward on GSE. So, Mike Brown, before we let you go, we've got the dynamic of spending and income of the American economy. And there's a number of research notes out right now showing things are pretty uh, pretty good in that regard and that incomes are rising and spending's rising as well. Would you explain a 3.5% savings rate? That seems absurd. Is, is that something that a pro like you makes note of or is it, is it just noise? Well, Tom, I have to go with uh, it appears to be noise at this point. Uh, it was very disconcerting to see the magnitude of the downward revision uh, in the first release of GDP. Uh, there was a benchmark revision by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, and they actually substantially downwardly revised that saving rate. So until we get a few more data points down the road here, I'm not convinced of that saving rate trend. Uh, it was almost double um, in the prior releases. If you go back and look at the first release data. Uh, and uh, it, it's certainly a very different story today. So uh, I'm, I'm withholding yeah. judgment on that. Michael Brown, thank you so much. Very valuable. He is with Wells Fargo. We appreciate his attendance uh, this morning. This could be a three-hour conversation. It is a joy Always to have Dennis Gartman with us, the Gartman letter. Too much to talk about, but one of the things you bring to us, Dennis, not that, you know, North Carolina and Virginia are modestly northeast of Texas. You do bring a southern perspective. In the flatlands north of Amarillo, we make jokes about the winter wheat and the red wheat, but you're one of the few people we talk to that actually is out of the three zip codes, David and I are familiar with. You need, you need to get more familiar with people outside of the three <laughs> okay. codes. What does this catastrophe mean? As you go north, in the 19th century, you came down the Mississippi to New Orleans. You moved over across the border, Texarkana, and moved down to Houston. What does that mean for that lower central Midwest of the nation? People are not aware of how serious this circumstance is and, and how much worse it's going to get over the course of the next several days. I just got an email from a friend in, uh, in the oil business in, in Virginia, of all places, uh, who informs me that the Colonial 1 and 2 pipelines have been closed. What does that uh, mean? That means you're not going to get gasoline up from uh, from the refineries at all for the next several weeks from uh, Texas to, to the Northeast, to the Midwest, to uh, Virginia, to North Carolina. Oh, this on, might have... but, but Mr. Macron <clears throat> would love to fill up a tanker and run it out of Marseille. Not a question. To save the United States. No, yes. Uh, somebody will have to do that. But uh, this, this, is, this situation is far worse than anybody might have dreamed it was going to be a mere uh, several days ago. When the hurricane first hit, I thought it would be a inconsequential. But the fact that it got as, as, as strong as it did, the, the fact that it stayed where it stayed, the fact that it has now distended the, the pipeline situation, it's going to be several weeks before we have all of the refineries back online, if indeed we get them back in several weeks. One would have thought that maybe gasoline prices on the East Coast might have, ridden, might have risen 3, 4, 5, 6 cents per gallon. They may go 25 or 30 or even 40 cents per gallon. Over the course of the next month what and a half or two months. What do you see when months? you look at that Brent WTI spread? What, what, what can you glean from looking at that comparison? Well, first of all, it, it, it made eminent sense, and it's going to continue to make eminent sense, that you're going to back up WTI crude at, 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 uh, at the Gulf. There, you can't, it's going to be moving. It's been moving. It's going to continue to back up. The, the contango for the front months is going to widen because crude is going to bid for storage. 
At the same time, the demand for Brent is probably going to continue to, to expand. Brent can be the only crude, for all intents and purposes, that's moving around the world in quality and in size. So you may widen that, that spread out to 5 $6. It would not surprise me even slightly. What else is, is, is affected by this, this storm? When you look at other commodities, of course, cotton's still a big crop uh, yeah. in the south, and, and I wonder That's sort the of one what, what you're seeing there. Yeah, you're worried about cotton. it. That's what I'm worried about. Uh, cotton, because uh, through the delta, if, this, if this, the remnants of this hurricane go where it looks like it's going to go, the cotton crop, which looked like it was in very good condition, could be damaged mm-hmm. rather materially. You don't want water on the cotton crop at this time of the year. And you really don't want water on the cotton crop as we get into middle September. You'd like to have it much drier than this. So that, that crop is, is going to be yeah. hurt, no question. Where are we in this? I remember going to a cotton farm in North Carolina that gets oh, pink at some point. Oh, where, where are we in this stage? I mean, it gets beautifully pink. quite beautiful. Yeah, it really is. It's one of the prettiest crops in the world, other than tobacco. Tobacco is really the prettiest crop. Oh, what is this, Farm Journal? The only cotton I know. I went down to Paul Stewart once and looked at the cotton. I'm the crop, there, the crop there is rather uh, sure. is very white, Lots isn't it? Of, yeah, exactly. Dennis, at the bottom of your newsletter, and I give you major cred for showing your record, I believe it says, good luck and good trading, comma, Dennis Gartman. Yeah. How, how tough is the equity market, the sport of saying, I want to place money long short inequities, and I don't want to do it for my retirement account. I just want to be in the market. It's a contact sport now, isn't it's it? A, it's, a, it's a full battle going on out there. And as I, as I tried to get across this morning, let, let's understand. Maybe the smartest thing I've heard is, is what was written in, in uh, reminiscences, reminiscences <coughs> of a stock operator 100 years ago when old Turkey said, after all, let us remember it is a bull market. We spend a lot of time deciding, do I want to own banks? Do I want to own tech? Do I want to own steel? Do I want to own cement? Sometimes it's just, well, just to get the direction right. So you come out with the direction, and you're so acclaimed, all the Gartman haters, the Gartman lovers, <laughs> they all come out, they look at it, etc. How do you decide to exit a successful or a failed trade? What, what triggers that? Stops. Stops, percentage changes. Are your stops now the same as they were five or six years ago before the churn, the madness, the range that we Yeah, and it's hard for me to get used to it. As as an old guy uh, who's afraid of learning new tricks, uh, anything that moves past three or four percent to me is is egregious and probably should be stopped out. But sometimes it seems like you have to give it far more distance than you did in the past, and that's that's made it difficult. What's really made it difficult is I, I used to think that the machines... The algorithms really had very little impact, but they're having more and more impact. The machines don't know history other yeah. than for the past several years. They don't know the history of the last 100 or, or 150 years. So all they know is buy it on any dip. We got a, a reader, Evan Stepnica, that sent in a letter and says, why are you writing up Doug Cass? You wrote up Doug Cass. Yes. Doug has been short the market. <laughs> you know, he's been long wrong. It's like the Yankees. It's like there's no hitting, well. no yeah. Cass. <laughs> <laughs> what what do you say to guys that say, and this we see it every Friday, the world's coming to an end, short this market. What do you say to that crew? It's a bull market. And despite the fact everything you've learned over the course of the past several hundred years, we, we, we think we've learned how to be contrarians. We think we've learned to be skeptics. But yet at times you just have to stand back and say, after all, it is a bull market. It is astonishing to me that we've come as far as we have. It's astonishing to me that we may even go farther. Nonetheless, 
It is moving from the lower yeah. left to the upper right, and sometimes that's the best way to go about Let's it. Let's come back with Dennis Garvin. Lots to talk about. And yes, because of your mail, we will touch upon gold in euros, <laughs> in rubles, golden zlotties as well. I have a chart among the thousands of Bloomberg charts that I have, which is called the Gartman chart. <laughs> I will put it out on Twitter, and it not only shows gold back eight, ten, nine years, but shows gold in euro as well. Dennis, basically on this hedge trade, you've been a genius for three years. Let's review it again. Yeah. Do you own gold now in dollars, or do you own mm -hmm. it in a beleaguered foreign currency? I own it in, in three forms. I own it in dollar terms via gold mining shares, but I predominantly own it in euros and in yen terms. So, yes, the answer is it's in my retirement account. It's been there for quite some period of time. It shall be there for some period of time going forward. Where is gold? I mean, gold is the ultimate range bound going back four years. Yes. What will be the catalyst to move the vector higher? Political circumstances probably will be one of the, the, the motivating circumstances. The fact that uh, too many people believe, for whatever reason, that the monetary authorities are going to curtail the, their experiments with quantitative easing. They're not going to do that anytime soon. And in fact, uh, Dr. Draghi made that abundantly clear last week when he said it in those terms. I was somewhat surprised that the euro actually rose on Friday, but it's given back all of those gains. So you're probably going to see political circumstances, central bank circumstances, and you might well begin to see... And this is something that everybody has called for a long period of time, and they've all called it wrong, a, an end to the deflationary impetus in the commodity markets and probably a turn for, the, for stronger prices sometime in the future. Boy, did we have a vanilla Jackson Hole conference uh, last week, too. It to was. It really was. It really was. And there was some speculation here that Mario Draghi would come in and talk down the euro a little bit. He didn't do he that. Didn't. Do, you, do you expect he's going to do that going forward? He's, uh, he's crafty. When you look at central bankers as a whole, he's one of the craftier ones. He's, he's, a, he's a smart duck, isn't he? And, and uh, first of all, Dr. Yellen's comments were, were as boring as any we'd ever seen. It was extraordinary. We'd, we'd all thought there was going to be something... Uh, dynamite to be said, and nothing was said. Uh, Draghi, I, I, I thought, reading his comments, and as I said in my newsletter this morning, I, I, I must have been completely wrong, but what I heard him say was that they were going to continue the expansion of quantitative easing, that there was no intention of curtailing it, and yet the euro soared on Friday afternoon. Caught me completely off guard. And if you take a look at the spec position, which I like to watch from the CFT, or from the CME, the, the spec longs are as long of the, of the euro as they have been in the past five years. That's always a, a point to say, you know what, I give you okay. some, I sell you some. Let's review then. Uh, my whole theme, Dennis, I don't know if you're aware of this because you never listen. Is, is, <laughs> I listen all the September, time. <laughs> September starting early. Like, you know, it used to be September was after you got off the golf course Wednesday after Labor Day. Well, the answer is no. September starting in August. And the great missed call of this summer was, as you say, spec longs. Everybody was long the dollar. X number of months ago. Yes. Now Explain to our audience what you do when you see a one-way bet. Well, right now, the bet has been on the other side. The, the, you, you do get those periods of time. There's no question. The spec longs in the dollar two and three and four months ago were egregiously large. They've shifted completely to the, now the point that the specs are net long of the euro. When you see that sort of circumstance, you probably should start saying to yourself, as, as I just said a few minutes ago, the spec longs are hugely long of, of, of the euro. Your propensity is to be a seller to it. But you have to wait until you see some technical, some some chart okay. signal that says, you know what, now is the right time. You probably saw that this week. Take it over to the equity markets where we all agree it's the most unloved bull market since time Absolutely. began. How do you measure the enthusiasm, the exuberance, as uh, Professor Schiller would say, of the equity market? I don't see it out there. It's not out there. Uh, there's, there's a greater sense of distrust for the stock market 
You would think after nine years of a bull market there would be exuberance everywhere, and there's not. And even I find myself time to time saying it's gotten oh it's gotten too high. I'm trying to sell it, and I'm wrong. I, mm. I have to repeat to myself every evening. After all, this is still a bull market, and there is real sense and wisdom in that to finally acknowledge that fact. It is still a bull market. Negotiators from Canada, the U.S., and Mexico sit down at a table in Mexico City tomorrow, I believe, for the second round of renegotiation talks related to NAFTA. Uh, it seemed for a time that we had some clarity on what was going to happen. These talks were going to continue. We were going to get some revised version of that uh, agreement. We've heard something different from the president over these last few days. Uh, yesterday in his speech in Missouri, on Twitter as well, he's talking about the prospects for terminating yes. uh, NAFTA. What's the, the market impact of that, that uh, uh, that disconnect, seemingly, between what's happening on the ground and what the president's saying. Let, let us hope that the president comes to his senses and stops saying silly things like he's going to deny the existence of NAFTA and not continue to negotiate. The Canadians and the, and the Mexicans have taken a far more positive and far more proper perspective than has this president. I think his protectionist attitudes are detrimental, deleterious, ugly, nasty, and should yeah. be stopped immediately. Dennis, the fabric. I hope I'm clear. You know, we we make jokes about it, but Dennis, but one of your great charms is you come from an area of the nation that defends uh, this country. I would guess we have more retired generals, admirals, admirals, and lieutenant colonels within X number of miles of the Gartman Fortress anywhere in this nation. We have them at our country club. You can see them. uh, Yeah, exactly. You know, to that point. How did they respond to having generals running the White House and Better. running the administration? Better. For the, for the very simple reason that the one person you really want to have at the controls of the military is a military man because the people oh, but, who are oh, most fearful. No, the people who are most fearful of going to war are people who have been to war. The last person you want responsible for, for waging war is somebody who's never been, hasn't seen anybody's arm shut off, hasn't seen... Okay, I'll go with that. But you got to have... There's a whole school of thought saying, this is great. General Mattis is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Everybody agrees with it. Yes. But what about this effect of having a general sitting in the Secretary of Defense chair? I think it's I, I think it's fine. I have no problem with it whatsoever, especially given the fact that it's Mattis, who is probably the most sophisticated, elegant, well-read, philosophical general that we've had in the past... Uh, 15 or 20 years. Other than my friend uh, Pete Dawkins, I don't know anybody who's wiser, better read than is he. We talk about the disconnect on the issue of trade. Uh, We've seen things get hotter still on the Korean Peninsula lately. Who are you looking to for guidance on what's going to happen uh, in that part of the world? First of all, nothing's going to happen there. I mean, he is is irrational, but he is rationally irrational. He understands that to do anything untoward, to attack any area of the United States or any of our allies— ends his life Im- immediately. Mm-hmm. And we, have, we, we forget the fact that here's an atheist. He has nothing to look forward to other than this life. That's the only thing he's got going for him. His intention of doing anything untoward is, I think, borders upon, the, upon zero. Now, right. can, can something happen? Yes. But do I think that it shall? No. Right. And I think that we have the right people involved right There's now. a certain kind of Democrat in your neck of the woods. Can the Democratic Party find that Democrat that they lost years ago? No, I'm not sure that they can. I think the Democratic Party is moving so far to the left, it's going to be very difficult for them to come yeah. back to the Scoop Jacksons of the past. Okay. Final question, long and short. Where are you right now this morning, long or short the market? You have to be long. Period. I am. Okay, Dennis Gartman, thank you so much. The Gartman letter, and, and really, again, folks, I put the chart, it looks pretty good, actually, in gold. <laughs> I mean, Gartman, 
you know, in Euro terms, it's like a nice percentage difference in gold. We thank Mr. Garman for coming today and particularly bringing along his entourage. The Garman entourage gets bigger and bigger <laughs> as the years go by. It's something about carrying a golf clubs to drive oh, out at Central Park, something, something like that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.